Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hey, everybody. Derek Harp here, founder and chairman of CSA and host of the CSA podcast show. I've got another fantastic guest on today. I have Dr. Jesus Molina, director of industrial IoT at Waterfall Security Solutions. He is a known OT cybersecurity thought leader and a longtime cybersecurity practitioner. If you don't know him, he is a technologist. He's an inventor. He is a all-around curious individual. He's a copious reader. He is an electrical engineer. He's got a master's and PhD, in fact, in electrical engineering. He's a researcher, a sailor, a traveler, a public speaker, an educator, and all-around very passionate about cybersecurity and cybersecurity for IoT and OT. And uh, welcome to the show, Jesus. Hi, Derek. I love your interest. <laughs> it makes you feel so good about yourself. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's the idea, you know, is showcase you you individuals out there that are doing amazing things and have been for a long time. I mean, you you've been in cybersecurity for uh, more than two decades, and uh, well, all, all my life actually, like since I was nine. We can discuss about this in a second. Well, this is good. We're gonna go. Let's go right there. So I always joke that uh, you know, sort of, I have a couple things I always say in every interview, right? That superheroes and, and cybersecurity people, you know, the modern day superheroes. So superheroes all have a backstory and. Uh, I'm waiting for one of you to say that it was some kind of lightning bolt and a vat of industrial waste, and that's how you became who you are today. But usually, it's a little more. Well, for me, it was more. I started to be a super villain, and then I turned okay. superhero. So okay, let's, let's and I, I will try to be candid, but maybe I'll change the names and the situations a bit. So, so where where did you grow I, up? I think has enough time passed that I can tell things. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a statute of limitations, I think, on some of that. Where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Ciudad Real, which uh, is in La Mancha, which uh, probably people don't know it is in Spain, and people that know it is in for Don Quixote, the, the book, you know, the, the Men of La Mancha, Don Quixote book. So this is where I was born, and all my family, if you go to my 23andMe, you will see I'm a pure-breed Spanish person. It's like it's 100% Spanish. It's pretty, pretty intense. I will say that if there is like a murder, and they say the Spanish guy did it, because he found my DNA. You live in, you're in Madrid today, correct? That's home. No, no, no. Like my life has been like moving everywhere. So I was going to the Real, then I moved to Tarragona, which is in Catalonia. That's where I did my high school. And then I moved when I was like 20 to Washington DC, actually to College Park, Maryland, when I did my PhD. And then I moved to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, I stayed uh, for another 10 years or something like that. But really I was in San Francisco in and out. I was in Japan, I was in China, I was in Colombia, I was in many different places. And now I am back in uh, Barcelona, uh, near Barcelona, a beautiful town, one of the most beautiful towns in the world for me is called Sitges. It's like uh, 20 kilometers south from Barcelona, near the sea, and now I'm seeing the sea. Very beautiful place. I forgot your Silicon Valley days because we were neighbors practically. I mean, there's a lot of us, eight, nine million people, I think, in the greater area there. But uh, I was there, uh, I lived there 2006 for 10 years or so, and I think so we were there. We, we meet at Burning Man. <laughs> That's possible. 
So um, you said early on in your life, there's a, an interest in computers and, uh, and maybe more. What's, what's that spark? What happened? Well, like uh, I got my first computer when I was, I think, nine. Uh, it was an Spectrum 48K. I don't know if you're familiar with Spectrum Sinclair. It was this computer where you need a tape in order to play the game. So you basically press play, and then you're like, it was like, uh, listen to music, and when the music ended, you have the game. So I got interested, and that's the first time cybersecurity came to be, because in order to get games, I was a very poor kid. Well, not poor, but like, I mean, I have enough to eat, but not enough to buy games, or my family had enough to buy games. So in order to buy games, you actually have to go to a newspaper, which was only microcoded, but it's called games. And then you will find somebody that wanted to exchange games. And then you record your games, send it in the mail, and then you will get back 20 games or something. And then you will use these 20 games to buy. Obviously, that's pirating, not proud of it. But that's when I started to say, uh, because a lot of these games started to have little things glitches. So you cannot do that. So it will, if you try to tape it, it will not work. So you started to just like tape the tape so you can like, uh, I mean, it's, uh, you started to go in the mindset of like, how can I overcome the fact that these people are, are, are trying to just avoid me to get to play my game? So, so that was my first touch in cybersecurity in a way. And that planted some real seeds uh, for you. Um, it's uh you know it's been a theme like you said for the rest of uh, the rest of your life i um I, I have a similar early background and it was five and a quarter uh, discats and you know taking a paper hole punch and learning that if i punched on the other side where the notch was it was suddenly double-sided without having to pay for a double-sided disc it was already double-sided you just need to tell the sensor this one you know now you can write to the other side of this thing so yeah i love, I love those all those early discoveries yeah, the early discoveries, you know, and you do because you're in need, you know, and that's uh, that happened to me again in high school. Like, uh, again, you understand that there was no internet or anything. It was these computers in high school when I was like 14 was the next discovery of computers, which was these, the PCs, which didn't have Windows, have Dr. Dear DOS and Framework and all these, these things. And uh, I was part of the lab and I was uh, in my uh, freshman year there and I was typing and suddenly the, the things start falling down. So you start typing and when you type, all the letters started falling down to the bottom of the screen. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> this is amazing. Everybody was like, oh no, what's going on? Everything is destroyed. I was like, this is amazing. Who, who's, who's doing this? And uh, the guy told me, oh, it's a virus. It's like, what's a virus? It's like, yeah, it's things that like get into your computer and modify to do your things. It's called Cascade, it's a virus. Now we have to go and use this antivirus. Like, what's an antivirus? It's like something you put in the computer called McAfee. And I'm like, uh, the first thing, and that's the first thing that came to my mind is like, I want to do a virus. <laughs> I want to do exactly that. This is what I want to do. It looks like you decided to use your powers for good, but that is a profession, obviously. It keeps, uh, keeps us all busy. There's plenty of people that go that path. Well, like, uh, actually, you know, I spent like uh, six months researching on how to do a virus. And those days, I, I, I researched of my magazines and everything. And uh, I, it was really difficult. You have to know assembly. It was, you, have to, you have to go around floppy disks to put the virus, you know, and you have to infect the master boot record. And I learned how to do it. And I tried. But the guy that was like uh, the, the senior guy was in charge of like uh, using the McAfee, you know, the computers after that cascade incident, always find all the viruses, right? So uh, I, I did like the stupid stuff, you know, but he always find it, you know, I tried to infect and like he always find me, you know? But that's the next year, I, one day in my high school, all the computers appear 
like with viruses. All the computers, every computer was infected, not one or two, all of them. They have never seen something like this. I will not say who was behind it. <laughs> I know it's very close to me. So, and everybody was trying, like the guys are to like uh, run the McAfee and try to find how we can be infected from this virus, which is a, how was a name, which was the name of my, of the town we were in, it was Tarragona, Tarragona virus. And he was unable to. So after two weeks, you know, he found out how this virus was made. And can you take a guess, Derek, probably you, like how a person with no understanding much of how viruses work and had failed to make a virus many times before was able to infect every computer of his high school, which by the way, the, the lab was down for a week because of that. So take a, take a shot. Well, how did he, this guy, this persona, this super villain? Do, do tell. Do tell. So going back like in a movie of like uh, of Agatha Christie, you know, I told you the guy was cleaning up every morning, every computer using the McAfee, all right? So what this guy did is he found the lock where the McAfee virus, antivirus was stored. He opened the McAfee bar, McAfee, like the disks, got all the disks, found the disks that had the signatures of all the viruses that was sent every month. He put a tape, which uh, it was used to, you can re-record these disks, as you said before, if you put a little like tape, re-record the, the, the antivirus signatures and added one more, which is Tarragona, <laughs> with a very common string that was in most executables. Not in all, because he was like, he tried before to see how this worked. So what happened is that is what we call a supply chain attack. You don't attack the actual computers, you attack the program that is used to clean the computers. Actually, if the guy has been smarter, he will actually have used his computers to actually stun an actual virus because they were passed every day. But what's interesting is that when you created something like this, and this is a shootout to everybody that tries to do something evil because you wanted to do mischief, and you thought everybody will find it so fast. This person, when he did that, you know, he thought everybody will know that it's the, the antivirus who has the virus. You know, I mean, it's just like obvious. Who, who can infect 30 computers at the same time? But in the moment of a crisis, People don't think about that. People always are in crisis mode. So they would, they, they, what they think is switch off the computer. Let's switch off the computer. So some people try to do mischief and they don't understand the consequences because in the moment of a crisis, people act very randomly. And you as an attacker sometimes want to do a little bit of bad and bad things happen, very bad things happen. I was called into the office of, the, my, of my high school and says like, I'm sure you did it. I never said I did it. <laughs> Just like, uh, because like, who else could do that? And it's like, well, anybody can, could do it, which I don't understand is like how the person that was in charge of the antivirus didn't protect it better. And I don't understand how didn't he know at the beginning, you know, because I mean, it's... So anyway, so at the end of the day, you, you have to see this. Sometimes mischief turns into really bad with the knowledge of the person that has the mischief that wanted to do a prank and like escalated quickly. I love it. That's a great formative story. And supply chain now is, I mean, like you said, that is exactly, uh, your, that's, you know, many years ago and supply chain is, is quite the discussion today about poisoning something along along the way. So how, what was the college choice of, of, of Washington, D.C. and electrical engineering? What went into that? I was a very good school a student in, in high school, like the smartest of my class. But uh, when I went to university, I was not that because I was in more 
university took me all in, you know, like the partying and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, student. But I befriended the chair of my department and he said, Jesus, you will do good in the US. I don't know why. Because actually my English was okay. I mean, it was horrendous, actually. Now my English is okay. Back then it was horrendous. But he, compared to others, it was better. It's like, there is a program that can make you go to the last part of your year to the US and do your master's there. You know, I'm like, that's great. So I was selected to do that. And uh, it was a cultural shock because it was totally different. First, I went with no money. And in Spain, you can live quite well with no money. In the US, you cannot live quite well with no money. You need a car. I remember like in College Park walking on this on the on the middle of the 101, you know, and people throwing me like food, you know, because I'm just like things that in Spain it's like, I don't know, it's just, uh, so it was a shock. And uh, I started my my degree there. And I was basically almost kicked out a couple of times because I didn't know much English. And uh, my professor, one of my mentors, Virgin Gligor, told me, which I will remember, there are people that are meant for doing a master's. There are person that are people that are meant to do a PhD. You are meant to be, do neither of these. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay. So I was like, well, you know, I can try. And I did try. And there was another professor called William Arbauk, which uh, gave me one chance. It's like, if you are the best of my class, and his class was with the best of the best of cybersecurity at the University of Maryland, I will give you a grant and you can obviously pay all your debts and all that stuff. And I did, and I was the best of the class. So he, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I was the best of the class. That's another story, but like, and he gave me a grant and I stayed there and I decided after that to do my PhD. Then. So that's, you know, how I stayed at College Park and I did my master's and my PhD. That's awesome. And, and how did you choose, uh, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, electrical engineering. Well, it was what in Spain we had something called telecomunicaciones, which is a king of electrical engineering. Here in Spain, we're more about it's because Telefonica here is a solid company, is more, more about communications. So, yeah. but it was a similar program. So that's how I moved from okay. one program to that program. Okay. But again, yes. it was very really different in the scope. Again, when I arrived to the masters, it's totally different than Spanish. Uh, in Spain, there is a lot of value in the exam. So people study for the exams. In the US, there's a value on projects you do. And I was definitely not used to working projects more with people. For me, it was, it was surprising that I have to, to work with other people, right? You know, so it was just insane. So actually, what, one of the, the projects that uh, William Arbaugh told me was to, I have to, to hack and decrypt the Intel microcode, which is this microcode that goes into every Intel chip and modifies the behavior of the chip itself. And it's encrypted with a public-private key. So it's uh, I did that kernel module, like whatever. But again, I had to work with others. And it was complicated for me because I was working with people that knew all about Linux. And I learned all about Linux and like how to work with different uh, drivers. And I built the driver for the microcode for Linux. So I did a lot of stuff there. It was forcing to me because I had to work with others, which is very important. It's one of the lessons. Is that sometimes you can work by yourself or you can work with others. And it's important to know how to do both. So any story from that before we leap off to what you went off and did first, anything from those years uh, that you think people might find interesting or inspirational? Is there a decision or a choice you made that even today you're like, man, right then I made that the pivotal moment in my, you know, in my career path? 
there was two pivotal moments. First, that's where I built my first patent, and uh, I was kind of screwed with it because my professor, William Arbaugh, actually made out of a company out of it and make out of money, and I didn't get any of the money because I was not part of the company. But I signed off my patent because I was a young student, and he told me, be careful what you sign, and I did sign out of my, out of my patent. But anyway, that's uh, that, what I'm saying is that sometimes when you're young, you're very trusting, and uh, you know that's something you learn. But uh, what I built there with uh, William Arbauk was this, um, that the patent work in 2016 is an intuition detection system, but in hardware. So basically it was a PCI board that you plug into your computer and it will check your memory and your hard drive, but without the intervention of the operating system. So basically we'll use the PCI bus to download modules from memory and download parts of the drive itself, the blocks, and it will evaluate them. So hackers could not have any chance. You know, you go to the computer and you'll have chance to do that. That's one thing it was very interesting to me because I have to work with hardware, like, I'm, like actually like use what board would call EPSTA 285. That was an ARM processor. So you have to install Linux in ARM and I have to call ARM. So it was really interesting. And the concept is really sound. And after that, that was my master's thing. And after that, I did my PhD, which was on uh, evaluating intuition detection systems. And perhaps the biggest lesson I learned there is that I created all these honeypots. That so I put like a hundred, I think, honeypots, and I could capture all the information that all these bad people did and try to evaluate them. Right. And the honeypots were very special because I did it in a way where they have like three levels of monitoring. And one was created by me using a kernel mode. So I detected, I think it was 800 intrusions. And I make all these big mathematical models. But there was one thing that escaped me. There was one person, only one, and that was able to disable my first monitoring system, my second monitoring system, and my third monitoring system. And there was no reason for him to do that because at some point he knew that was a honeypot. <laughs> I mean, at some point you're a hacker, you disable the first kernel module, the third module, and you are like, ah, this obviously is a computer from a university. I mean, this obviously it's a honeypot. But he's like, you know what? I'm going to mess up with this researcher. <laughs> I'm going to try to like tamper. Like, he tampered with my laws, he tampered with the virtual machine. So what you learn is like IDSs are good, but there's only if one person escapes <laughs> your net. Then you're screwed anyway. I mean, it doesn't matter if you capture 799. My thesis could be like, IDSs really doesn't work because I capture 799 and that's what they do. But this guy, I just, this is screwed with my IDS. So what can I say? It's just like, IDSs sometimes doesn't work and that time can ruin your thesis <laughs> so, or, or your company or everything. So that's something I learned in that time. Actually, I never put that in my dissertation. So it's another thing to make it too hard. I said That's that I, everything was fine. I, we saw all these uh, different activities and like yeah. and move on. It's like all right, just like let's let's say there was somebody that uh, I was in the lab. And that's it. Oh man, what a great story! I can just try to imagine you reading through all the uh, all the logs. Like, what is this person doing? Why and why? Because you know that he, he came he back one time after another from different IP addresses. You can tell because he was continuing. There was like. Yeah. A Obviously, 800 means 800 different IP addresses. But some of them were coming from different IP addresses, but were the same. And some of them were like, I would say 90%, 95% were like dumb, like hackers. Just like, you know, they run like things that are normal. They just like press a button and use 
whatever cutting, whatever they were using back then. And then well, they were like 5% that were smarter. I mean, you can tell they were typing things and trying things. And there was one that was a fucking genius and I like a lot of time in his hands. Like, why would you do that? You know? Here, like, uh, I tried to put two things together and I saw that he logged in from different IP addresses like 15 times until he actually was able to disable my third. And I don't know what to do after that. You know, actually, I was unable to. I had to shut down that whole machine and I like, moved somewhere else because it, after that, obviously, everything can be screwed by this guy doing things all the time. So, anyway, so you learn, learn the hard way that like bad guys, sometimes you don't think they have incentives to do bad things, but then sometimes they are just, oh, you know what, I will do it anyway. Um, have to be careful. I love it. So you've done a, a lot of things right now between then and Waterfall. Uh, you were at Fujitsu. You, you started out uh, started out with them. You've been a researcher. You've been your own consulting uh, business for some years. You've been at you know at, at uh, Jade Brain, your industrial. You, you've also volunteer positions. That's probably something to talk about. You, I see Industrial Internet Consortium, and um, I know I saw earlier Trusted Computing Group, one of the board chairs. So, you know, and, and ultimately now Waterfall for six years, you know, along that line, what's you know, any stories, you know, leading up to where you are today that sort of, you know, you've got more so than most, some people like when did industrial or when did control related systems come into play in cybersecurity? You've got those, those things very, very early, you know, pretty much, you know, right away, you were working with hardware and cybersecurity and you're not, uh, it's not later converging into your path as it is for some people who may be working traditional IT cyber, and suddenly they're looking at control systems. But you know, did engineering, did your engineering background and uh, and the nature of, of evolving of control systems the last couple of years, you know, w- when did that become more more of your focus? Today, obviously, that's your that's your area is the the industrial and control and operating technology side of the house. When did that really get get going? So in Fujitsu Laboratories, Fujitsu Laboratories is the research brand of Fujitsu, right? And they hired me uh, right after my PhD because they really, I was working with them, you know, in a project with Willem Arbauk or know, something I was working with. So I was hired there as a researcher and they really liked me. So they continued. And I was in a weird situation because I didn't want to leave my PhD because of, again, long story, but uh, I was paid very well to be a, be a student. And I was doing another PhD on, on Spanish literature at the same time. I decided that uh, they were like more fun in that department than in, in electrical engineering. So, but I was hired by them, and then I started doing very cool research projects because for each laboratories work a little bit like a like a startup. So you basically will do a project, and then you will send it to Japan. I will Japan. It's like, do you like this? And they were like, ah, yeah, or oh no. So I was in Japan all the time going, and we did a wireless wallet, which was like a payment system back then, which a device we created. Uh, so it was a really cool payment system. I have a patent on a payment system on that. We did a lot of info, things about cloud. One of the first information about clouds, uh, we have a paper, which is like cybersecurity in cloud, which is a seminal paper we wrote uh, with the people of, now I cannot remember the lab, but one famous lab there, there in, in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we did, I did a lot of like cool projects uh, with Fujitsu. One of the coolest projects I remember is uh, we had to hack smart meters. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. And they led the charge this year for the podcast and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. 
So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. So they give us all these, you know, like meters work at like the, the at 220 volts. So you have to use a special place to just evaluate them and stuff, you know. And I was able to find like they give it to us to Fujitsu basically, and we have to evaluate it. I cannot tell you what company like hired, but uh, I was able to actually find something which is really cool that nobody knows, or I don't know if it still exists. But that company had a code that was hidden that I was able to disable the smart meter remotely. And that was made hiddenly. So if somebody, at some point, there was a change of the laws, you could actually press a button and switch off the lights of people because they didn't pay or something like that. So it was interesting because sometimes you are researching something and then you are stumbled on this. And it's like, should I, should I bring this? Because like that's bad for my business. If I say, hey, I found this, and that's not good for you guys. you know. But sometimes you're like in this, when you do this like pen testing, sometimes you find things and you're like, eh, no. So at some point, going to the conduit, I decided that I had enough information, I would say, from Fujitsu Laboratories, which like, again, I have uh, very good uh, mentors there, Ryusuke Masuoka, for example. And uh, also Fujitsu like, used me a lot to be part of the standardization agencies, to send them there in the Trusted Computing Group, which Fujitsu Laboratories, Fujitsu as a whole, was uh, part of it at the beginning, at the very start when they designed the Trusted Platform Module. I don't know. You remember what the trust pro well, you know what the trust platform module is, right? So back then we built the specs for that in 2007. That's when we finished the specs of the TPM 1.1 and TPM 1.2. I don't know what. And then we did. And there's a good story about this. The story is about the TPM. The trusted platform module, when I was part of this standardization agency, was supposed to be in every computer, and we were so successful that the TPM was in every computer. But that was in 2007, and only until today, people started working on it. And the reason behind this is one professor said, the TPM is a nightmare for privacy, because now they can track you down anywhere you go. They can tell what computer is you with absolute precision. So what we did as a tested computing group was too nice, and what we we said as a group said like you know what, let's make it disabled by default, and also we'll make anonymization protocol called TCSS or something like that. It was amazing. People there, they were some of the biggest brains on computers in the trusted computing group, and because of that, nobody turned it on, and nobody used it for years and years and years so much that like they took it off most computers, and now I think because Windows started using it, it's back on. But it's interesting that anonymity right now is something so fake. Everybody's in Facebook saying, but that was pre-Facebook. And back then, anonymity was really important. And this professor was very strict. And I said, like, I'm going to bury your TPM if you don't disable by default. And we did. If we haven't done it, I think we'll have a totally different internet. Because we're talking about 2007 or something like this. I mean, you have been, every computer has a different kind of keys, and everybody has a person that is in the TPM. But because that didn't, we disable by default, then nobody used it. So it's, uh, it's interesting how standards can change things, or standards are sometimes too nice and like uh, miss the chance 
because of that. And I, again, I think TPM is impressive, the work we did back then and probably the work we are still doing. And that strikes me as that, that you know, conundrum for, for cybersecurity professionals, which is we can't always do everything we might want because of the realities and anonymity is, you know, is one or sort of confidentiality or whatever you want to call it, uh, privacy. But, you know, running the business is, you know, is number one. You know, and so security has to sort of fit within these things. So that was an unintended consequence of, of what it sounds like, you know, very early, pretty smart engineering that couldn't fully be adopted. So it didn't mean it didn't work. It, in fact, you're saying, hey, this thing would have been great, but it didn't fit the norm. It wasn't implementable by uh, by by most people, or they weren't willing to. And I wonder how much frustration all my years that I've been involved in this industry, I've sensed this frustration with many cybersecurity people. It's like, oh, if we could just do, it's not they can't see the path forward, but it's got to operate with business and people's resistances and all these other chess pieces on the board besides cybersecurity. Well, look at the software bill of materials, which right now everything is trumpeting us like, oh my God, we just discovered this. And like, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, like when we did the TPM, the first concept of TPM is not like a trusted boot, it's a measured boot. So you have to measure everything in the stack before you boot. And it's stored in registers called the PCRs inside the TPM. That's how the TPM works. And then you are locked in that state. The keys can only be released if you have gone through that boot and all the measurements are correct, matches what is in the chip. And then you can actually work, right? So this is the concept. So in order to do that, every step of the boot process needs to be recorded, including the operating system. So why did we fail? Because nobody wanted to do that software bill of materials. Windows, our friends of Microsoft, we were part of the TAPM, uh, the Trusted Computing Group, did not include that as a part of the drivers. So if you cannot, if you stop at the level of the operating system, the TPM was only measuring the BIOS basically. So it was not very useful, really. I mean, it was like just like a key. So it was not very interesting. But now everybody's about the software bill of materials when I think they will find the same problems we had back then. And it's that you can have a beautiful software bill of materials, but if you change like one part of that program and you try to evaluate it against like a repository, then that fails and then it's a mess. And then what do you do? And these are the false positives. So there are things that are, the old is new and the new is old, you know, yeah. <laughs> something black. And it's like, I mean, back then we fought so much in Linux, we created the TSS, the Tradware, was a driver for Linux. And even Linux was like, I don't know, we're interested in that. Because then we have to put every everything that we put in every module that is loaded by the operating system, we need to measure it and we have to track modifications. And it's just a pain. And I was like, ah. So yeah, I mean this is what you're saying. Like it's it's about a little bit of like usability versus what, you know, the right moment at the right time, you know, people are, have like a drive, but I mean, it's, uh, it's like IDSs for, uh, for OT, you know, OT IDSs now are like, oh my God, so it's like they have found cheese, you know, like, I mean, it's, I mean, it's an IDS, <laughs> like, but you actually look at things that are a little bit more different, but host IDSs, in IDSs were so big in 2007 that they didn't make a huge contest of who, which was the best IDSs. They made these huge databases with attacks, you know, and you can run it in your thing. And this disappeared. There is not a way to evaluate IDSs or anything like this. Or I think they did it in Black Hat or Defcon or maybe in S4. 
edit something like this, but it is going to be always a miserable because everybody that loses says like, well, I lost because my idea is that's this thing, but not this thing. So, why? so it's uh, all these tools that we see today, most of these software tools are very similar to the tools I was like looking at 2007. So nothing changed much in that front, but obviously it evolved, evolved, obviously yeah, better and like, Okay, let's talk control systems. People sometimes ask, you know, where are these industrial control systems? And so we, you know, at CSA, we dropped the word industrial many years ago and said, anywhere there's physical elements. And almost every every company, I would say now, the way I define it, every company has some exposure. Sure, an oil refinery is easy to manufacture or to, to conceive of all their control systems. But if you've got an elevator or an escalator, so even a hotel has control-related interfaces. And I understand you might know you might know something about hotels and how they operate. Yeah, that's my, my one. But first, I have done things that are out of the screen time, you know, which uh, were probably worse or worse. Like, uh, I mean, like I was more, uh, for a while, I was a great, great hat hacker, you know, like I befriended a lot of good, actual, bona fide black hat hackers in Defcon, Black Hat, and all these places. And I learned quite a bit from them. There were some amazing, like, People there and people that usually don't want to part of the spotlight. If you want to do something mischievous, you prefer somebody to take credit of it. But in this case, I did decide to take credit of it just because of different things. So basically, what I I was a host, I guess, in one hotel in China in the Shenzhen, the San Regis Shenzhen, a five-star hotel, one of the most luxurious hotels I've ever, ever been in my life. It's in the 20 last floors of a skyscraper in Shenzhen. The, K100 building. And while I was in the hotel, I found an iPad. You know, the iPads, and you, I've never seen that before in a hotel, uh, was able to control your room. Switch on the TV, you can switch on the, you know, open the blinds, change the channels, put music. You can do lots of things. Change the outside lights, which are relevant for the next thing I will tell you. So long story short, I decided to see how this worked because I was, I was curious. So See I was thinking, how these work. I like that. I like that. I said how this works because curiosity is like what like put me in a lot of situations in my life. It's like, yeah, cool, let it go. And I had things to do. I was working for a, for a Chinese company back then as a consultant. I mean, curiosity, by the way, is a word that came up a lot as you've talked today in my head. I just think about your nature from probably from the very, very beginning. That sounds like that's who you've been. And I'm picturing you in this hotel, like doing regular work during the day and like up all night doing this other work. Exactly. Well, it was my birthday. So, well, it was, it's a long story, but that was like my birthday, I had to work and I was kind of pissed off that I had to be in that beautiful hotel with no friends there. And, uh, you know, in a foreign country with like, I'm like the most amazing pool you can imagine in the top floor. And I, you know, it's like the, the joke, no? It's, just, it's, if you find this supermodel in like, uh, in, in, in your, island and you have never seen anybody the first thing you can tell people when you see them is like i was in a, in, a, in an island with a supermodel right <laughs> so it's the same thing i was in a hotel and like i didn't have any friends to just share how beautiful this hotel is and how lucky i was to be there so i spent the nights as like and, and one night i was there for five six days i remember and uh, one night you know i, I was looking okay so okay i'm mesmerized about this ipad how this works how, how this ipad sends things to all these build like all the room so I put this, like uh, the wire arc, you see, you know, like I started listening to, to what this iPad was sending because it was also unplugged from anywhere. So it has to be wireless. 
And I started like getting all the, the, the traces of what's, what was working on. And there was a protocol that actually I looked at in, in another project it was called KNX. So I was lucky enough. It's like, oh, I know these are telegrams from KNX, but these are building automated systems, building management systems. So I was a little bit surprised that they use that to open lights. It means that this is bigger than just like the iPad talking with this room. So I started calling the hotel and telling them, hey, I don't like this room. Can you change me to another room? So they would change me to another room. And then I will collect the traces and compare. It's like, what are these different lights going on? And I started switching off lights and see if like, I can see the traces, you know, when I look, what were the telegrams sent to? So if they were different, they were the same, it was. So I started to compile after changing, I changed. And this is another trick I have to tell you, Derek. If you want to be in the best room of a hotel, call them seven times and ask them to change your room like several times and they will give you the best suite they have. They give me this incredible, like the presidential with like three levels. It was insane. I was like, and the funny thing is that room didn't have an iPad. <laughs> it was the only room of the hotel. It's like, oh crap. <laughs> I was like, well, can you? So yeah, so anyways, what I did is I, I collected this and, and I did a Python program, which is able not to control only my room, which was my initial request was, I want to control my room with my iPad, so my iPad, my laptop, so I can do happy birthday using the light blinking, beep, 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 like the lights, I like the lights outside. But then I realized that you can control every room because all of them work for the same network. So if I press a button, I can actually raise all the blinds of all the rooms at the same time. I can switch on all the TVs at the same time because all there were like wireless to KNX, wired KNX and KNX to the whole thing. So everything was routed, so everything was like connected to everything. So I was able to control the whole building and I tested it. I tested it by using the outside lights. So I make a little like round around the, the, the hotel where all the outside lights started to link at the same time. Yeah, it's a way to record it without having to be in different rooms more because I was stuck in the, in the switch and I was not able to test it. So I was like, and telling them to change my room will look suspicious. It's like, look, we're in the best room. Well, you want to downgrade you to their room? But like an interesting part of this story is that it took me like two days and a half to changing rooms, collecting all the information, understanding, creating a Python program and KNX. But you know what? I had all the traces of Wireshark that I collected, everything. I tried to do the same thing that I did back then, but using ChatGPT. So I fit ChatGPT exactly the same things I did back then, you know, with the same knowledge more or less. Like, hey, Wireshark, like here's the Wireshark traces. What is this protocol I see here? It's like, oh, it's KNX. That was like ChatGPT telling me right away. Hey, can you know what are these? Uh, oh, they are telegrams and they are from different devices. Oh, interesting. All right. Can you make me a Python program that can connect with the different devices? Like, uh, which is what I did. It took me like a day and a half. Not only this, I give them like two traces from two different rooms and you tell me, and the pattern was a little bit confusing because it was like, like jumped 50 numbers or something like that. And I give him three different traces of three different rooms. It's like, hey, there are three different devices and they think there is a pattern here. Can you tell me the pattern for every room? It's like, oh yeah, it's, it's exactly what I discovered after like. <laughs> so ChatGPT did what I did in, in that hotel room for a day and a half, took me to full time almost. And uh, he did it in like, like 10 minutes. Like, I mean, obviously you have to use like, I will have to check the Python program against the different devices to see it actually work. And, uh, you know, probably they have some mistakes. Yeah. They don't have the chance to do today. But 
Surprising is that ChatGPT, when it comes to offensive, when it comes to creating the payload and understanding patterns, is very good. Is really good. It's not good, I think, to do penetration testing. But I think when it comes that you are inside, I think we want to say an uptake on this because I was shocked that ChatGPT was so good and realizing something. It took me, as an expert, it took me a little bit to realize and create the program. Some things you learn about this is first, never talk with, uh, with journalists. Kim Zetter interviewed me, which is a journalist that is amazing, she's great, and that was a good one. But I interviewed with many other journalists that were not good journalists. And I have a piece of NPR where I look like the biggest jerk in the world, saying like, I control the whole hotel and blah, blah, blah. When I told her directly, don't use bites because the Starwood, which is now part of Hilton, was so nice with me, so nice. People have like sued me, but were super nice, right? They put some ground rules because I sent them a letter saying I did that in your hotel. They never replied to me, they didn't realize they received the letter, which was certified, and then apologized, but they said excuse me. But anyway, we're super nice. But the only thing they asked me is like, please don't brag. You know, please <laughs> don't go around. And this lady put me with my knowledge in uh, the NPR, you guys still find it, NPR has Molina, eh, talking about myself as I was the biggest shit in the world. Well, the piece was about how I could be liable for what I have done, uh, talking with a lawyer. It's like, this guy could be sentenced for what he has done, talking about me, while I was like bragging about uh, hacking the hotel. He still re recorded me while we were drinking outside in a bar, so oh. I was like, yeah, so, one thing you learn, and then I started with comments like Jesus, you heard the piece in NPR. It's kind of tone it down a bit, and <laughs> you. So be careful with journalists because they are good ones, and they are ones that can really not so good. And they say, I, I call her, and I said, oh, you were on the record. Yeah, but you told me that you would not do it. It's like, yeah, sorry. You're on the record. Everything you, you know say. What? Every guest has given some different gold nugget advice. This is a unique one that no one, we're almost at 100 episodes and no one's brought this up. But if you're a security researcher, you're bringing up a very cautionary tale of being quite careful about what you say, especially to someone who's a, who's a journalist, because it can be twisted, right? It can be used in ways that you didn't in, in, intend. I mean, that is an amazing story. But you can end up in That's jail. something that all researchers can pay attention to, right? Yes, because you can have like uh, disclosure, but sometimes you do something again, some mischief, you know, that you believe is okay. More when the person, the people that uh, you did the mischief to, this can start with, they're so good about it. I mean, they were good. They could have like shut it down or tried to shut me down or something. And they were like, Jesus, obviously, I wasn't my lawyer when talking with them. It was not as easy as that, you know, I need to, I had to hire a lawyer and the lawyer talked with the lawyers and everybody was happy. But if you talk too much with lawyer, like um, the problem is how people spin it. Uh, the media is very good at cutting parts of what you said and put it in exactly, they have a narrative. The narrative of this lady was, if you are a gray hat hacker, you can go to jail. That was her narrative. That's what her piece wanted to do. So he, she found somebody in Black Hat that was not able to give the talk because the lawyers of the company that he hacked, like told him not to do it and he decided not to do it. And then he put me a, a pitch again, it's like, and somebody with the talking black cat is Jesus Molina. And like, I, <laughs> so her narrative was clear from the beginning. The only thing they want from you is a soundbite, saying something 
they like to listen and they will put that out of context because what they said there was like well having like a couple of wine talking about something different not the main interview at all and i was like yeah. but i did it and i was on the record so yes again be very careful when you talk with the press be very careful but don't be naive thinking that everybody's good People can be amazing journalists like Kim Zetter, where like they always are like, Jesus, this is what they're going to write, Jesus, be careful, you know, Jesus, whatever. Yeah. And there are other journalists that are not that nice. So you see that in every, you know, all these late night shows, there is always an idiot being interviewed who says something like, I don't know where Africa is in. You think it's the only person interviewed? You think this is the whole context? Yeah. I mean, if they want to for you to look like an idiot, they will make you look like an idiot. They will first you sign all these documents saying like I read this all what I said, and then they will say, oh, I'll cut it here. Cut it here. No. Well, yeah. what um, you know, as we wrap up, because uh, you and I could go for for hours. That's uh, always the challenge with most of my guests. There's so much we could talk about. Um, we'll just have to have you, you know, come back and uh, do another another deep dive episode into one of your your areas of of research and passion. But what are you excited about the future or not? I mean, I mean, are you also do you see things, you know, that scare you in the future? Like we're headed to, to more trouble. You know, is it is it optimistic, pessimistic? What's your view of the future and what are you excited about? I think we have to defend ourselves against AI. <laughs> you have seen the movies. We are all okay with it, you know. We are like, oh yeah, AI, whatever. We're like, it's like we're crazy, but like, I see the boots on the ground. What happened to me there in that hotel, and now I review it with AI in like five minutes. People are talking a little bit in a willy-nilly things of like penetration testing and blah blah blah. In OT and my company, what it does is like what it called network engineering, I say, or like cyber informed engineering. So it's like mixing a little bit cybersecurity with engineering. So, you know, like waterfall, you know about it. That's your actual gateways, which basically prevent physically any data to come into a system. Now, this matches a little bit of this. Two things are happening. First, first attacks to to systems with physical consequences are escalating and. Uh, Andrew Ginter has been in your chat saying this, so I will not go and rehash what he's saying. But what I'm saying from my own research is there is another piece of the puzzle, and is that Robert Lee, you know, like 2016, he did this um, very seminal paper called the ICS Cyber Kill Chain. No, you know that paper, right? You know, like uh, I know Rob, yeah. And so he did. There was like two phases or stages: stage one and stage two. Stage one is similar for IT and OT; it's just like somebody entering your system. Stage two is what happens in the OT system. And stage two is something that we have never, we've seen very few attacks which like really deliver in stage two. We have seen in Destroyer, a couple of uh, the Ukraine like uh, things, Stuxnet, of course, you know, which I don't, you know, like 2010. But the payloads have been very, you know, not very interesting. What I see is that using AI, and I've seen that in my own research on that, that hotel, AI, you can make payloads that are very fun because what I don't tell you is that I didn't tell you only to do the Python program to, to do that. I asked her or him or whatever this ChatGPT is, what other things I can do? And he told me, you can brick KNX devices. And you know what happened a year and a half ago or uh, recently is that KNX, KNX lock has been used to brick devices in a building management system and that's something that I didn't know. I didn't know the context. ChatGPT doesn't know what happened a year ago. And she told me exactly that. And she told me how to do it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you can go more than that. Or she told me more interesting things. So she started to tell me all these payloads and creating them for me because he actually created payloads for me. It's like, okay, so I want now to, you know, one thing you can do is 
try to delay the HVAC systems to all be like, uh, you know, increase the, the raise the, the, I mean, crazy things like raise the temperature in the morning or so it's very, very hot in every room and so do it. And, and he told me, it's like, oh, how can I do that? Oh, yeah, like the HVAC system is this. And then in order to raise this morning, you do that. Here is the program. to do. So is, is what you're just saying there is that if if you go back in time, sophisticated code, sophisticated attack, small number of people who could perpetrate it, relatively small to the world, that now a larger audience can do Cut. more sophisticated things in a shorter amount of time. Is that? Correct. If you yeah. were in like, like uh, Robert Lee put like a, a, a little at the end of the paper, he is, uh, okay, a stage two, and he has like a kind of like a, like a bullseye, you know, and he said, this is very difficult and this is very easy, right? And there are things that are very difficult, like, you know, do attacks against like machines and like disabled machines, and these have changed. Like now attacks that were very difficult, if you were a manufacturing plant, you have no idea. I mean, as an attacker that knows IT and knows how to do penetration penetrate a system, you don't know what to do in stage two. Now you can. You have some traces of the network. You put it in in ChatGPT, in, in tell me what's up, and what are the worst things I can do here? And in that attack, what I am telling you, and like, what's, you know, this new, like, how we defend against this? I think we need to be much more strict. We, as I talk about IDS is not working or working, sometimes it doesn't work. We cannot rely on the 1% of times things work or 2% of times things work, things doesn't work because that may be too much going into the future. I think we need like things like the civil informed engineering systems where like you have your, your engineering system so you know that attacks from outside can enter your system at the XOR gateways or relief valves or like what Andrew talks in his last book. We are facing, and this is not happening next year or in two years, but in five years, in five years, like creating payloads that are very sophisticated for OT systems is going to be really simple and probably you can download it from the web on how to like do this like patterning like manufacturing plan because today I can start doing it. I mean, I can start creating these payloads. I have a, a like, a, and I don't want to do it, but if I have a sandbox, which looks like, and maybe you will not be very accurate. Maybe you will not be able to increase the temperature but you can be like much better than today. I mean, much better today doing these attacks to OT systems like rail networks. Rail networks, if, you are, if you're an attacker and you end up in a signaling system, you don't know what to do. Well, now you know what to do because trust me, if you touch a GPT, this is the trace, they tell you, oh, this is, a, this is a, like a signaling system made by this manufacturer and what you're seeing is that, that, that. And then you're like, oh, Okay, so what's the worst that can happen? And this is the thing about, you cannot ask ChatGPT to do malware, but you can ask her to do, what's the worst thing I can do if I control every computer in this system? Because she's okay with that. She's like, oh, you control every computer in the system, then you're the owner. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> this is what you can do. Mm. So it, it is quite interesting that this is stage two, I think is one of the things people oversee. They see AI being used to create phishing attacks very well. But I think a stage two of the OT server kill chain is going to be modified AI, and we need to find ways to prevent that. That's another. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you you got you shared that. I think that's a pretty thought provoking uh, area for for all of us to be paying uh, paying closer attention to. So last but not least, just you know, thinking about the things, all these projects that you touch, um, cloud, rail, AI. 
is that part of your role as the sort of director of industrial IoT at Waterfall? Are you looking at and sort of what are all the, the, the areas and research and things that are happening? Is that part of it or is that just your personal, still your personal interest area? Well, now I'm a professor also here at the university, going back to my own university, I'm a professor in like a master on cybersecurity in rail networks, uh, collaborating with Renfair and Eve and other operators here. But no, that's like, I am very curious in general. So I like to do many things apart of what I like. And I think that's another thing that maybe it's a nugget of knowledge. It's really good for cybersecurity people to understand that the more things you know from outside cybersecurity, the better you will be. And other thing is like cybersecurity is so useful, so useful to other things. I was a journalist and I was able to interview Tarantino and like Almodovar and like Bardem. And the only reason I was able to do it, it was about I was because I was a cybersecurity professional, because I was able to know more than the others. I mean, cybersecurity people, we have a lot to bring to the world because we have a mentality uh, that is very unique because usually it's, it's based on curiosity. So it's something we can, I think like I will ask a lot of cybersecurity people to maybe try another field <laughs> because maybe they will be very successful in which they don't know because they see things in other ways. So what they can tell you is that, uh, you know, bringing different views and like knowing literature or like bringing your views to to the world is really good and like you can teach people more than cyber security but also the mentality of like the curiosity that sometimes is difficult every kid today what they ask me is like oh you do cyber security can you help me hack this game <laughs> so i win that all the kids all the my daughter's uh, friends they come to me it's like hey can you you know what is uh, this thing can i uh, pass this state level it's like yeah, but first you need to understand how the world, like the wing works. Then we can put together a, like a plan on how to do it, and then we can execute. It's like, oh, that's too much. But you know, the the idea is there. You know, it's the curiosity of like first you have to understand how it works in order to defeat it. You know, so this is something that is very interesting on how you, and me, and others in this field think differently, think more with curiosity as a, as a, as a base. Well, this has been. Uh been super fascinating uh, all these interviews are so different uh but this is i must admit uh, been been a pretty pretty enjoyable one i wish we had could just go longer well we're at uh sort of my favorite one of my favorite parts of, of doing these i have uh borrowed something from a television show called the pivot questionnaire and this was on inside the actor's studio for many many years it may still be i really should look it up but i used to watch back when james lipton was the host and he's passed on but for decades he would interview all the famous actors and actresses people like you mentioned earlier, and he would ask these same 10 questions, which he got from a French show. So I think this is more than 50 years old, and I have not changed a word of it. Uh, and just as a, a tip of my hat to those shows, if you want to finish with the Pivot questionnaire, I'll, I'll start start out. And uh, should. <laughs> okay, let's do it. What is your favorite word? Okay, so it's Calipedia in Spanish. Calipedia is the art of making beautiful children. And it's a word that I read in a book one time. <laughs> and it's like a word that nobody uses, but I think it's the most, and Calipedia is so, so beautiful. And like the meaning of like the art of making beautiful children, it's, uh, it's uh, using alchemy, I guess. <laughs> but it's just like this, forget about that part. It's, I thought, uh, and it's still in the dictionary in, in Spain, uh, Calipedia, so I, I love that word. What is your least favorite word? I could tell you why my least favorite word in the past, today is Delve because AI uses all the time. Every time you see 
anything that has delve or in conclusion is made by AI. It is like a 95% because delve was never used before, but delve is used in so many articles today that is like, and I hate that word. I just, I don't know how it sounds. I don't know what uses it, but I mean, yeah, delve. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Curiosity, like uh, learning things that are out of my comfort zone, I would say. Like I'm learning piano now, I'm learning things that are like things that you're not good at, I would say, that are like uh, understand things that I would never thought that I could do that. That is really like, emotionally important for me. What turns you off? Confrontation. I am very bad at confrontation and that goes, this is like, you say, oh, it's good, it's like bad. You know, I am the worst negotiator in the world. You know, I went to Turkey recently to the bazaar and I went out with like a million things I didn't need for a million. And I wanted to go there to negotiate. <laughs> when I came back, it's like, how? Oh, because you know, like in, the, in order to negotiate, you need to, to avoid, like to know how to confront somebody and I'm very bad at confrontation. So confrontation turns me off and I'm very bad. What is your favorite curse word? A lab word, I guess. I, can, I cannot, and, and it's kind of funny because it's not even from my maternal language. I never say, I mean, in Spain, in Spanish, because I went to the US so fast and like I was, I don't know, I was sheltered. I never use curse words in Spanish. So my Spanish is a little bit too nice, you know, but my English, I use F too much. What sound or noise do you love? I love the, the, the laugh of my, of my daughter. That's the one I just can't get enough of that. It's so cute. What sound or noise do you hate? Actually, like, if I have to be honest, I uh, don't like music when I'm working. I mean, it's just when I work, uh, people love to hear music when they work. I just don't like music. That sound is always, because I get focused on the music more and, and I just want silence. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would like to be a performer uh, of an instrument. I started uh, to do the piano during the pandemic and I, uh, I got pretty good uh, because I've been self-taught, so I'm not bad. But I still don't understand how they do in concerts and they all like go together and the piano goes and then the th this is still, because I've never played an instrument in my life, I, I thought I was very bad at music, which I think I'm pretty bad at, not as bad as I thought. Uh, it's something so I would I would love to is to perform in front of people and love me just because I play an instrument. That must be like what a sensation. So yes, that. What profession would you not like to do? A profession I already done, which is being a, a journalist of the heart or a journalist of like famous people, because it's the worst possible job. Like you really need to fight against all these people with cameras pushing you, and they're like cutthroats if you like interview one person and they, inter they want to interview them, they will try to cut you off. Journalists is a profession very misunderstood, in particular when you have to fight against other journalists because you have to be better than them. And it's a profession that <laughs> involves a lot of confrontation. So that's a profession that, hey, I have friends that are journalists, and it's like, I, that's a profession I would never want to do. I tried, I failed miserably, and I would never want to do that. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Jesus, you have been so amazing in this life that you are granted a hundred more lives. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, thank you. I am just finishing up with Dr. Jesus Molina, Director of Industrial IoT at Waterfall Security Solutions, a man of many talents and great curiosity and a longtime 
contributor to cybersecurity for more than two decades and practically his, his entire life. So thank you for all that you do and uh, staying as curious as you are for all of our all of our benefit for coming on the show thank today. Thank you, Derek, for uh, you know creating this uh, repository of what all of us have as a background. Because I think, as you say, uh, sometimes our background and how we get here and uh, what you have done is very unique. And uh, more for people that work in OT cybersecurity, it's just like such a mix of interesting people. And it's always surprising. I was surprised when I found your podcast of like learning so many things about people that have talked a hundred times. I'm like, oh my God, next time I talk with him, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. And thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. And I'm very glad to add you to the uh to what I have joked as the pantheon of heroes. It's been, my experience has been what you just described. I've known many of the, the, the guests, not all. And even the ones I've known, I learned a ton of things I never knew before. And I've heard many people say, I've known so-and-so forever and I didn't know they were into this or into that. And we all have come from so many backgrounds, especially I think in OT cybersecurity, so many interesting early steps because you go back far enough, there's nobody who's a specialist in OT cyber. So everybody had to come from somewhere. And so many um, characters, so, so many characters. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Surprised. It's like, wow, these people, yeah. it's a very unique field. And it I'm is. Glad. Well, thank you, Jesus. And uh, take care and be well. And uh, hopefully I'll see you again soon. If, if not before, maybe maybe that's for. Likewise, I'll see you in for, for sure. If not. All right. Thank you so, so much, Derek. Bye. Good night. Hi, everyone. This is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care.